Lord, indeed, we look forward to the greater things that are to be done in this city. We humbly ask that you would use us in that process. Lord, show us where you are at work and what you're doing, that we may join you, that we may be a part of that process that advances your kingdom, that ultimately brings you glory. That is why we are here. And Lord, as we finish out our series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Lord, I ask that you once again through your Spirit would speak through me. It would be as if you were physically present, Jesus, speaking to this congregation. And once again, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do your work of convicting us in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment. But I also pray that your church would be built up as a result of this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take a seat, get your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 29. A day which you thought it would never come. We're going to finish the Sermon on the Mount, right? Look at Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. Matthew 7, 24 through 29. Get out your tablet, your Bible, your phone, whatever. Okay. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The summer of 1992 was a milestone summer for me. That was the summer that I graduated from college. Uh, The first 22 years of my life had been years defined by studying. Remember that? All you know all your years of life was just studying. And I was finally going to put to use what my education had taught me, which wasn't much. That was also the summer I first visited the West Coast. Upon graduating from college, I flew out to join the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ and receive further training, more studying, yuck, In San Bernardino, California. Has anyone ever been to San Bernardino, California? Some of you have? Okay, good. That was also the summer I experienced earthquakes. In the land of fruits and nuts, California, um, I experienced earthquakes. On Sunday, June 28th, 1992, I had to look this up. 
because I shared some of this story with you before. I was sleeping on the floor in the TV room of an apartment in Diamond Bar, California. Anyone ever been to Diamond Bar, California, by chance? You know where it is? Okay. My friend from college, Craig Thompson, he had joined the staff of Camp Safer Christ as well. We both went out there to, for training. But he had a cousin, and we were visiting this cousin uh, because later that day we were going to make a trip to Tijuana, Mexico. Why we were doing that, I don't know. I was 22 years old. I didn't know any better, but it's Tijuana, and you just wanted to go to Tijuana, right? Well, at 4.57 a.m., I only know it because I looked it up, I felt a rumble as the apartment began to shake. And immediately I knew it was an earthquake. In the darkness, I did what you're not supposed to do. Run to the door and try and get outside. And it was so dark and I couldn't figure out how to open the door. Thankfully, I didn't open the door. Because it was dark, I couldn't see how to unlock the door, so I ended up freezing as the others braced themselves in doorways. My friend from Ohio that I came out there to join staff with Camp Safe Christ, he knew to stand in the hallway and break yourself in the door. How he knew that, I don't know. I didn't know that. The shaking lasted, you ready for this? Two to three minutes. I was struck by two things going through that. The sound of the shaking, it sounded exactly like an earthquake that you would hear in a movie. They've got that, that sound down to a, a T. Second, the piercing sound of car alarms going off. It wasn't just one or two. Or, I mean, all car alarms that, cars had car alarms at that time because of shaking. They were all going off. Well, it turns out that I had just experienced a magnitude 7.3 earthquake. And although this earthquake was much more powerful than most, the damage and loss of life were minimized. Two people died as a result of heart attacks, and a three-year-old boy from Massachusetts who was visiting friends or family in Yucca Valley with his parents died when bricks from a chimney collapsed into a living room where he was sleeping. Now, when this earthquake was over, this is what... People in the land of fruits and nuts do. They turn on TV and to find out what's going on, what happened, and where the center of it was, and so on and so forth. And how much was the damage? So we turned on the news and eventually fell back to sleep. It was, it was just generally odd because I'm looking at these people from the United States Geological Survey talking like I never knew these people existed. Here I am intently watching them. About three hours later... I felt another rumble. The apartment began to shake, and the sound of an earthquake filled the apartment. But being the seasoned veteran of earthquakes I was, I did the other thing you were not supposed to do. Walk to a window and look outside. Actually, I walked to a, a, up to a sliding glass door to look at the in-ground pool because we're in an apartment complex. I think I shared this with you before. The pool was doing this. And the water just was sloshing back and forth. Okay? Then I heard that piercing sound of all these car alarms going off again. 
But I was disappointed when I was told that that was only an aftershock. Well, it turns out that the United States Geological Survey was wrong. I just experienced the 6.5 magnitude Big Bear earthquake. So I'm getting a lot of bang for my buck for my trip for California. Two earthquakes, right? It was originally considered an aftershock, but later it was reclassified as a separate but related earthquake. The very next day, after, by the way, we decided that, because we're dumb, we'll go to Tijuana, even though there's just been these two major earthquakes. We'll risk going under the, the, the overpasses with everything that could fall on you and bridges that are unstable and so on, because we want to go to Tijuana. The next day, I'm back in San Bernardino. I'm getting more training, and I'm sitting in a classroom, and the ground begins to rumble again at 10.15 a.m., well, we all looked at each other and said that was an aftershock because it was not as strong as the two prior earthquakes. Well, it turns out we were wrong. We had just experienced our third earthquake, the 5.7 magnitude Little Skull Mountain earthquake near Yukon Mountain, Nevada. It was triggered by the surface wave energy produced by the 7.3 magnitude Landers earthquake, the first one I experienced at 4.57 in the morning. And even though the epicenter was in Nevada, we felt it in San Bernardino, California. Now, fortunately, all of the buildings I was in during those three earthquakes apparently were built on a solid foundation and could withstand an earthquake. And for that, I am grateful. But my thought is, well, what if I had been in a building that was not built upon a solid foundation? What if I was in the Millennium Towers? You ever heard of that? Or the Millennium Tower? Have you ever heard of that building? Millennium Tower. I should have put a slide up here for you to see it, but this is a true story. Have you heard of the famous Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy? Yes. But you probably never heard of the Leaning Tower of San Francisco. It's called the Millennium Tower, built in 2008. It's a 58-story skyscraper. It stands proudly, but slightly crookedly, in downtown San Francisco. Now, they use a special type of construction. Um, like it was construction plate something that they used to, to, to build this building. But the developer didn't want to submit to a peer review of their construction plans because it would possibly delay construction. So the plans were sort of hastily approved, but this would prove to be costly because in 2015... It was discovered that this 58-story tower of a building uh, was sinking and tilting. So it was going down and tilting. Its engineers didn't dig a deep enough foundation. So now they're being forced to retrofit the foundation with repairs. Guess how much those repairs cost? A hundred million dollars. Now, the original cost of the building was six hundred million dollars. Now, some believe that this fix is, is just necessary to keep it, this building from collapsing during an earthquake. However, the repairs in the repair project was halted just this past August after monitoring indicated that the building had unexpectedly sunk an additional inch. This is after. 39 of the 52 piles that they were putting underneath the foundation to secure it were installed. The building still sunk another inch. 
Let me put this in perspective. A one-inch drop at the foundation translates to an additional five inches of lean on the 58th floor. The painful lesson here. Foundations matter, right? Obviously. When your foundation isn't solid, catastrophe could ensue. Now, as Jesus concludes his Sermon on the Mount, he ends with an invitation to make a decision. We've been over this. And he made it as clear as possible using a series of twos. There are two gates, the wide and straight. There are two ways, the broad and the narrow. Two destinations, life and destruction. Two kinds of travelers, the few and the many. Two kinds of trees, the good and the corrupt. Two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad. The verses that we looked at this morning, we just read, we're going to look at this morning in detail. Notice that they continue this series of twos. What do you see there? Two builders. Got that? The wise and the foolish. Two foundations. Rock and the sand. Two houses. Two elements to this storm that Jesus discusses. And there, of course, are two outcomes. Now, the invitation in Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says to enter by the narrow gate onto the narrow way that leads to life. But this isn't easy for two reasons. One is what? False prophets. They obscure the narrow gate in an attempt to deceive people. And number two, which we talked about, I think it was last week, there are false professors. These are people who are self-deceived. They say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name and that in your name. Jesus says, I never knew you. Now, these false professors, these are people who say, but don't do. Because that's the first thing. Many will say. Many will say. So these are the sayers. They say, but they don't do. Do you know anybody that likes to say, but doesn't like to do? In verses 24 through 27, which we just read, we're introduced to another type of self-deceived person. These are people who hear, but don't do. And all you wives are thinking, you've just described my husband. Now, whereas the first group, the people who say, but don't do, they have empty words. There's a mere verbal profession that is repeated until finally you convince yourself that it must be true even though there's no evidence. But the second group, they hear but they don't do. They just have empty hearts. They have a head knowledge without a heart knowledge. And so we're going to look at these groups, particularly the last group this morning. Let's talk about the wise builder. Look at verses 24 through 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Now here's a couple things I want you to notice. First of all, that the wise man hears the words of Jesus. Now what does that mean? Well, it means that he hears the message, hears the words, and he understands it. That's the first thing. Upon understanding the words of Jesus, he does what? He acts upon them. 
Now, in this story, what is the action? Well, he builds, this wise man builds his house on the rock. But what is the rock Jesus is referring to? And that's what you would think, and Ron is wrong as usual. I got to give Ron a hard time because he's leaving soon. So, um, yeah, let me. What is the rock? Well, some say God is the rock, for example. They quote Psalm 18 too. The Lord is my rock. Heard this in my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. By saying God is my rock, they mean that they're building their life on God, right? Problem with this is that is this, that the Pharisees would say the same thing, that they were building their life on God, but they were, reject, and they rejected Jesus. They were wrong. Now, there are others, like Peter and Ron, who say that the rock is Christ, right? You're not the only one who thought that, Ron. You sang a song, Christ alone, what? Cornerstone, Right? comes from 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Here's a problem with that. You and I both know plenty of people who say they built, they built their life on Christ. But their life doesn't really show it. They're not really believers. Notice in this context in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus says this, who hears these words of mine and acts on them. So I think it's clear that the rock he's referring to is obedience to the words of God. Okay? I think this is supported by other verses. To people who believe, John said this in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So it isn't just the hearing and the believing. I can hear and believe. It is the continuing in obedience to the word of God. James said this, you know this, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For some of us, that's a very scary thought. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. And that's a good thing for some of us. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So don't be deluded, people. If you don't do what our Lord commands, then you're deceiving yourself. And John put it this way again. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Because the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. And even Titus remarked that people profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and, watch this, disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now, this is so important for us to understand that I put this verse up here for us because there's one other point that Luke brings out about the wise man, and it's in this verse right here, Luke 6, 46 through 48. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. See, he dug deep, the wise man. Now, what does that mean to dig deep? Well, in this context, it means this. He entered, when he entered by the narrow gate, he carefully considered what it would require. See, he counted the cost. The person who digs deep desires to strive to enter in and travel down the hard way. In other words, he embraced the labor and the constant battle to deny self and to take up his cross daily in order to build on the rock. And for the wise man, the storm comes. Now, what are the storms? Well, the storms, I believe Jesus is referring to, are two possibilities. The first is the storms of life. Remember the parable of the sower? He cast all that seed. Matthew 13, 20, 21 says this, The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises, that's the storms of life, because of the word, immediately he falls away. So many have professed faith in Christ, but only to deny their faith when life becomes too costly. It's too, it's, there's too much of a cost to remain spiritual. It's too difficult. It's too hard. Now, the second possibility is that the storm is a symbol of, or he's referring to, the final judgment. We talked about that last week, the great white throne judgment. There's going to come a time of a divine accounting. God's going to blow the wind of judgment and rain the rain of judgment and send the flood of judgment. And when he does, because the wise man listened to the words of Jesus and obeyed them, his house what? It still stands. It seems that as we've turned into the 21st century, that the number of hurricanes spawned in the Atlantic seem to increase dramatically. If you have any doubt about that, ask my mother-in-law, who was thrilled to not have to deal with hurricanes anymore. I went through two hurricanes. They're not pleasant. Now, Hurricane Andrew, one of the most powerful hurricanes, hit southern Florida in 1992, at literally leveling thousands of homes. In most areas, what was left looked like the after effects of an atomic bomb. It does look like that. But in the backdrop of devastation, one house remained firmly anchored on its foundation. When a reporter asked the homeowner why his house had not been blown away, he gives a classic reply. This is what he said. I built this house myself. I also built it according to the Florida State Building Code. And when the code called for two-by-six roof trusses, I used two-by-six roof trusses. I was told that a house built according to code could withstand a hurricane. And it did. Now, whether your religion is true or false, it's eventually going to be tried. 
And whether you're, you're chaff or wheat, as Jesus talked about, you're going to be found out. And someday the chief winnower is going to come. He's going to separate the chaff and the wheat. He's going to blow the wind of judgment, and those who have built their lives in the rock are going to stand. Now, that's the wise builder. Let's talk about the foolish builder. That's verses 26 and 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Now, just like the wise builder, the foolish builder also hears the words of Jesus. Did you catch that? They hear the words of Jesus. This means that he hears the message and understands it. But upon understanding the words of Jesus, however, he does not act on them. In this story, the foolish man builds his house on the sand. Now, what is the sand? It's in contrast to the rock. Well, it's it's the ever-changing human philosophies and false religions of this world that are constantly changing like sands constantly change and move. And they stand in opposition to the word of God. And even though people listen to the word of God, they see no need to do what the word of God says. Prophet Jeremiah describes, I think, the foolish so perfectly when he writes this. Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. I think of the foolish builder as like, and you've probably had these type of conversations, it's like the person that you're having a conversation with who just cannot see reality. I mean, all the facts line up and the evidence is clear and overwhelming in your favor, but these people are just unable to see the truth. And when we walk away from those conversations, what happens? Well, we're just kind of struggling in our minds to grasp how blind and ignorant a person can be. I mean, it's evidence, evidence is right in front of you. Because foolish is the only appropriate word for such behavior. And that's the foolish builder. And I also want you to notice that the foolish man did not dig deep and lay a foundation on the rock. This implies that the foolish builder was thoughtless, made a quick decision to enter by the popular wide gate. It reveals a shocking level of superficiality. He followed the crowd into the wide gate and down the easy path. There was no counting the cost. There was no careful consideration of the easy path he was now on. And by the way, on that easy path, he ran into some real estate agents selling lots on the sand. Verse 15 to 20 calls them false prophets. And when the storms of life and the storms of God's judgment come... And make no mistake, folks, these storms will come. His house does not stand because the storms undermine the sand and the house falls. Neil Beetleman survived the ill-fated 1996 expedition which eight climbers died on Mount Everest. You ever see that movie Everest that came out? Some of them had paid $65,000 for a chance to scale the world's highest peak. And in assessing what went wrong, Beetleman said, tragedies and disasters are not the result of a single decision, a single event, or a single mistake. 
They are the culmination of things in your life. Something happens and it becomes a catalyst for all the things you've had at risk. On Everest, that something was a raging blizzard. According to the journalist Todd Burgess, if not for the storm, the climbers may have gotten away with taking so many risks. But the storm exposed their weaknesses. And for the foolish builder, when the storm comes, it causes the house to fall. But it says here in the passage here that great was its fall. Do you see that? Why was it a great fall? Well, in the context of the sermon and other areas that Jesus taught about in the Gospels, the fall is great because of its result. It, see, it results in eternal separation from God in a place of unspeakable everlasting torment. You see, you don't get another chance to build a house. And that's a hefty price to pay for not doing the words of Jesus, the words he commands us to do. Now, it's common to us, though, that we'd like to hear but don't like to do. C.S. Lewis gives an illustration from his own life of the attitude of, of many of us, if not all of us, who, who hear the gospel and fail to act upon it. And he writes this, When I was a child, I often had a toothache. You ever had a toothache? And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me go to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least, not till the point became very bad. And the reason I did that go was this. I didn't doubt that she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right and I knew those dentists. I knew they started filling about with all sorts of other teeth which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. Now, there are similarities that I want you to understand and see that will give you great insight into this passage here between the two builders. First of all, both individuals built or built a house. You see that? Obvious. What does that mean? Well, it means that they're both involved in spiritual activities, is what Jesus is really talking about. They both perhaps read scripture or attend prayer meetings or go to spiritual conferences. In other words, they're both involved in something that has to do with the kingdom of God. Okay? They both belong, number two, to the, the visual, visible body of believers. There's the thing called the visible body of Christ, which is what I'm looking at right now, and the invisible body of Christ, which I can't see. And that's the, of the people that in here that actually are believers. That's called the invisible body of Christ. But both are part of the visible body of Christ. They both perhaps attend meetings at the church. And they both are busy framing some kind of spiritual value system, building up some house of spiritual activity with an invisible foundation. Now here's the key that is only revealed during a test or trial. Catch that? Now second, it's apparent that so not only did they both individuals build a house, they both build their house in the same location because 
Notice that the same storm hits the same houses, right? Hits both houses. True believers and, and false believers invariably live side by side, is the point. And this is a message of the parable of the wheat and tares. I mean, they live in the same neighborhood, they attend the same church, they go to the same Bible studies, and they're so similar in the building they build that they're indistinguishable to most people. And third, they build in the same way. The Lord says the only difference is what? The foundation. In other words, they carry a Bible and a journal. They offer up prayers and attend certain church activities. They probably even give some money to the Lord. See, it all looks very much the same until you see the foundation. And the foundation is revealed only through the storm. It is not visible once the building is up. So both people build a house, they build it in the same place, and they build it in the same way, and it's hard to tell the difference until the foundation is exposed through the trials of life or the judgment of God. And it's a hard question, but we need to know, well, how do we know if we are the real deal? (laughs) I mean, I'm talking about what a lot of us look like, right? Well, how do we know if we're the real deal? Well... False professors and false listeners, the two groups we've looked at, they're going to last until judgment comes. And as I said earlier, judgment may come in the form of the trials of life or the day of judgment. But try this test. Is the test popularity? No, for there are many on the broad road to destruction. How about, is the test words? Well, there are many who are depending on words saying, Lord, Lord, but there is no assurance of salvation. Well, how about religious activities? I mean, even religious activities in a church organization are no assurance. Well, how then shall we judge ourselves and others who profess Christ as Savior? Well, number one, think of the two ways, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. The two ways tell us to examine the cost of our profession of faith. Have we paid a price to profess faith in Christ? The two trees, Matthew seven sixteen to 20, tell us to investigate whether our lives have really changed. Are there godly fruits from our lives? And one of those fruits, folks, has to be this, an intimate personal relationship with Jesus. That's a non-negotiable and number three, there are the two houses we just talked about. They remind us that true faith in Christ will last not only in the storms of life, but also in the final judgment. See, only an honest and careful soul-searching self-examination can reveal the truth. And those who have trusted Christ and have proved their faith by their obedience will have nothing to fear because their house is founded on the rock and it will stand But those who profess to trust Christ, yet have not obeyed Christ's will or God's word, will be condemned. But I want you to look at the last two verses of Matthew chapter 7. They'll shed some light on the question, how do we know if we're the real deal? Look at verses 28 and 29. It says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Well, what was the response to this 
day, I mean, this sermon, the other people, it says, were amazed. Now, the word amazed means it blew their minds, this sermon. It blew their minds. It blew their minds that anybody could stand up there and, and say all those things with such power and authority and do it like the scribes and, and do it like the scribes who quoted other sources or not do it like the scribes who quoted other sources. I think the people are utterly shocked, is what it, the text leads us to believe, that he didn't use anybody else as an authority, but seemed to stand on his own authority. They'd never heard such wisdom, sensed such depth, and understood such scope. Every dimension of human life was touched in such a concise manner that was breathtaking. They'd never heard such precise insight into the law of God or the sin of man, They'd never heard such fearful warnings about hell and judgment. They'd never heard anybody who so confronted the religious leaders of the time. See, that's how it ends. But tragically, there was no great revival or a record number of conversions. You remember Peter's first sermon in Acts Acts 2.41? 3,000 people converted. There is no record of this happening as a result of this sermon. No conversions. They were just amazed. You see all they did for that sermon? They analyzed it. But that's not the way it has to end for you. Jesus didn't preach that sermon to give out information. Yeah, he was laying out the standards for his kingdom. It was his manifesto statement. He didn't go on that mountain just to talk so people could hear, and that was it. He knows what lies ahead for those people, the judgment that's coming. You should be more than amazed. We should all be more than amazed. We should be converted. Because that's what Jesus is after. See, and that's the application point. To be converted, to be changed as a result of listening to this sermon. And it makes me feel good about my teaching ability. Because if God himself preached a sermon that I could never preach, and all he got was a people that analyzed it, because you do the same to me. <laughs> well, I love that sermon, and you talk to me about it, and so on, and and I don't know, I'm assuming there is, but I don't know what changes happened in your life. But if it happened to God, it speaks to the, the depth of the corruption of our hearts. And, and that's not the heart of God. It's not my heart either. We want you to be converted. Again, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm here to keep you out of hell. I'm here to populate the kingdom of heaven. And so that's the application point. To be converted. Don't just be a listener. Be a listener and a doer. Let's pray. God, these are, are it's such a wonderful sermon. And I've learned so much analyzing and looking through the Sermon on the Mount and been challenged in so many different ways. And Father, we desire that we don't want to be a people that just hear your words, but do them. Please guard us from such self-deception.
may our lives be different because we listen and we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed Sunday. We'll close with this. God bless you. I'll see you next week. Oh, by the way, you have work to do. I'm not preaching next week. We're going to share what you've learned. Now, I understand that we've been going over this sermon for a long time. I've sent you the sermons. Okay? So it's next week we will share like we used to. I'll walk around with the mic, and you guys are going to share what you've learned from these sermons. So you got a lot of work to do, okay? And Debbie's feeling real bad right now because she just deleted my sermons. So, oh, you printed them all off, okay? So if you need uh, some sermons, or whatever. But just like we used to, I need to know what you're hearing and what you're doing about it. So we will have that time of sharing next week, okay? Then the following Sunday will be Invitation Sunday. So God bless you. Have a great day.